The Dancepreneuring Studio, Session 76, The Beautiful Struggle of Running a Dance Company. Five, six, seven, eight. Hi there and happy July. Welcome to the Dancepreneuring Studio. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm Annette Bone and the Dancepreneuring Studio is the place where dance inspires life and business. I get the privilege of bringing you some of the best and creative minds who are connected to the art of dance as they share their stories, their ideas, strategies, and tactics to help move your life and your business forward. I am excited to share with you this interview that I did with Amy Catfox Campion, Artistic Director of Antics, and they have a performance coming up July 8th and 9th, which I've linked in the show notes, so you can get tickets and get all the information on her company. And I love everything that we talked about, topics such as the pivotal moment where the Nutcracker lost its magical appeal, and then also the critical things to consider when starting a dance company. Get ready for some real talk. Hi, this is Amy Catfox Campion, Artistic Director of Antics, down with Barnyard Cannibals, otherwise known as Professora Haposa with Capoeira Batuki. You are listening to another session of the Dancepreneuring Studio with Annette Bone. Now that you're warmed up, get ready to go full out with our feature presentation. Amy Catfox Campion is a dancer, teacher, choreographer, and the artistic director for Antics, a multimedia hip-hop dance theater company in Los Angeles, and they've toured nationally and internationally. She holds a bachelor's degree in dance as well as a master of fine arts degree in choreography. Her work has been featured in numerous dance festivals, and her company, Antics, has won several dance awards. I'm really looking forward to her sharing her latest project, as well as learning how she runs her successful dance company. Hi, Amy. Thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Thanks for having me. I'm doing really well. You know, it was such an interesting turn of events running into you at the dance assembly of all places when we, you know, we had some email contact and then we were going to touch base and then oh my goodness, we run into each other in the bathroom at the dance assembly. (laughs) I thought that was so, it was timely, right? It was meant to be, right? I'm so glad we actually got to, you know, talk. And and I loved what you said as we were talking and I was finding out more about antics and you and, and all the things that you're doing. I absolutely loved what you said when you said that dance is, quote, a beautiful struggle. Why did you describe it that way? Well, All of the arts, I think, really are a beautiful struggle. And um, part of that is because in order to create uh, excellent art, you have to be very invested in it. And that requires uh, a devotion of time and energy. Um, And and yet it's very difficult to devote full time and energy uh, unless that is in somehow, some way, able to be your profession, um, able to uh, put a roof over your head and food on your table, um, and the economics of arts in the in the U.S. at least, eh, probably in many countries, but the U.S. Uh, is, is just very difficult. Um, there's not a lot of uh, funding for the arts. There's uh, charitable giving for the arts is a small fraction of charitable giving for other causes in the U.S. Americans are very generous with their with their charitable giving, and yet the arts is still only a little fraction of that. Um, and so just the, the sustainability of, you know, what it takes to um, create professional level art of any type, uh, you know, especially the performing arts, um, which really can be, um, you know, require a huge investment in terms of production when you're creating stage shows and, and what have you. So that, that's the part that is the struggle. It is frequently economically a struggle. There's other struggles in it as well. Um, just the the artistic struggle of uh, of solidifying your vision, of clarifying your vision, and actually bringing that from your mind into the world where it is in the form of art or a performance uh, or a performance of whatever type that um, audiences can see and appreciate. Um, that's a struggle, um, but the end result, uh, if everything goes well, is quite beautiful. And even the process, um, because there's so much passion in it and uh, so much inspiration in it, even the process itself, I believe is beautiful. I mentioned that 
Antics has performed internationally and nationally. Do you find, besides the obvious of the cultural differences, a different country and that kind of thing, different touring nationally than internationally and getting all those details taken care of? You have someone that does that for you or is that a struggle too? What what are the differences, if any, when you're touring nationally versus internationally? Uh, well, first of all, um, Antics has no employees. <laughs> Antics is all run on independent contractors and volunteers. Um, and I volunteer a great deal of my time um, for Antics. Uh, and my bread and butter is from university teaching and, and that sort of thing. And most of, uh, most of antics income is going to pay dancers. Uh, yeah, the majority of antics income goes right back into paying dancers because the, they are the, uh, the fundamental materials that make antics artwork excellent. Uh, so so I'm, I am, as the artistic director of Antics, I am also the executive director of Antics. And most anything that needs to be done from marketing to uh, booking to uh, the logistics of travel, it, it comes through me first. Um, in the last few years, I've gotten a little better at... Um, at pulling in help, at least I will say contracting help. So, um, with regards to touring nationally and internationally, uh, we have an agent, um, who helps us with bookings. Rachel Cohen with Cadence Arts Network is wonderful. Um, she's got, you know, decades of experience in the game and, uh, very deep relationships with many presenters. And, um, she's helped us connect with, um, theaters across the country that may otherwise have just had no idea about our work, um, particularly because we're still on the on the front end of, of expanding beyond Los Angeles, like really only within the last few years that we've been, uh, touring. So, uh, so that's been instrumental, but, uh, uh, with regards to, uh, doing the legwork that it takes logistically to put together a tour nationally or internationally, um, that's mostly me doing it. Um, I get about five hours a week of help from a managing director through the Dance Resource Center of Los Angeles. And I'm a huge fan of the work they do there. Uh, they are really an excellent um, dance service organization, and they've just been flourishing in the last few years um, and really finding innovative ways to help dance artists be able to do their work. Um, so at any rate, that that's helped to have um, a little bit of assistance at, to the tune of five hours a week. Um, but primarily, I'm the one that's um, ultimately uh, booking the airline tickets, uh, you know, handling hotel reservations. Sometimes the presenter at the theater uh, sorts out the hotel. That was actually the case when we went to uh, Brazil. Um, but in that, in that case of traveling to tour in Brazil, and that was last year, our antics toured our performance of illuminated manuscript, which is a hip hop dance theater version of the Epic of Gilgamesh. Um, we took that to Brazil. So, uh, the festivals down there that we performed at, um, were really awesome and wonderful. They hooked us up with very wonderful hotels. They took care of our food the entire time. Um, they handled our transportation for us when we needed to get back and forth between the theater or to the places where we were doing street performances and teaching workshops. What I was handling in that um, particular gig was just everything on the artistic end. So I had to translate. We had a bunch of um, projections in there that were writing of the actual story um, that helped illuminate <laughs> what was the the storyline in the epic. Ep ep uh, excuse me, in the Epic of Gilgamesh, because not everyone is familiar uh, with that story. It's a very ancient one from Mesopotamia, one of the oldest known stories in the world. And so I had to translate those um, projections into Portuguese. Um, I worked with a friend who helped me. And then, you know, I was editing the video and re-exporting that. So we, we created video projections that were only for our performances in Brazil. We probably won't be doing that show again in Brazil anytime soon. So um, don't know that we'll use them again. Maybe <laughs> next time it'll be in, I don't know, Ireland or China or something. We'll have to get them translated into Chinese. But uh, yeah, so that, that I think the most challenging part of that particular show was that uh, for a few reasons, I ended up 
functioning as the technical director as well. I went down there thinking, okay, the theater person received our light plot, received our light cues and what have you, and they're going to have the show already written. And that was just nowhere near the case. You know, I am not an expert by any means in lighting design or anything technical theater related. Um, You know, I understand the basics um, and I'm able to request what I need for my vision for the show as a director, but but I don't know the jargon and, and what have you. So I ended up having to completely redesign the lights for that show from the ground up. And part of that was just because I speak some Portuguese. And the other part was because we didn't travel with a technical director, um, in part because I couldn't find one who spoke Portuguese that was able to travel with us and learn the show in advance. So it just ended up being me. And that was a little crazy. It just was like a lot on my plate at that time, but we made it happen. And that was really the most beautiful version of that show that I think was ever performed. Yeah. was there in Brazil. So, Do you feel that when you have to take on more of these necessary operational administrative type things that are obviously very necessary, um, do you feel that hampers your creativity or does that the does that overwhelm restrict the creativity you have in choreographing and teaching what would you say about that yes i quite frankly yeah it it does um and i think that's just real talk that's the state of performing arts and the arts in the us to to great degree it's the economic necessity that I am handling so much of the administration work, not all of it, but a large, large chunk when if that was not the case, then yeah, I could focus my entire day on choreographing new material or digging into the material that we have and really investing um, more time and thought in how to be refining and revising and continuing to like grapple with the artistic issues as it is. I spend time preparing for rehearsal and figuring out what it is that we're going to be doing while we're there. Uh, Not as much as I would like, but I do. And then when we're in rehearsal, we function very collaboratively. It's still probably over 50% of the choreography is, is coming from me, but the dancers contribute a lot. They contribute greatly. Um, There's also this open dialogue process for feedback within the rehearsal process where the dancers can be suggesting changes that are going to help it work better. And we talk about what changes might be effective or why they might or might not, or what we can do. And then we're, you know, we're making changes on the fly and they are choreographing pretty much all of their solos um, under my direction. They're choreographing them as well as some duets and trios and um, quartets um, and from time to time also group routines. So it's it's very collaborative and that's how we're able to um, to do what we do because it's not me holding tight to being, you know, to having like absolute dictatorial control over every aspect of the company. I really try to encourage and foster contributions um, from each person in the manner that they feel uh, inspired to and to really empower them to do that. But yeah, if I didn't have to, you know, answer emails for several hours each day, um, I would happily spend more time jamming out and creating new work. With the dancers that you're working with and maybe dancers in the past, did you find when you started working with them that they had a hard time in that kind of environment where it's community collaboration or were they coming in expecting, oh, she's going to have all the choreography ready for me. She's going to tell me what to do and I'm just going to execute because that's two totally different approaches in choreography and in putting together something. Do you make that clear when you're hiring your dancers that, okay, this is how we work. This is how we're going to work. You're going to contribute, that kind of thing. How how has that been with working with different dancers? It's been quite easy. And in fact, I think that that's, that is one of the selling points. That's one of the things that dancers love about antics uh, is that they are able to contribute so much creatively. Antics being um, a fairly small budget, like under $100,000 a year dance company. Yeah, we're a professional dance company. Um, no, we're not full-time. We're not rehearsing with the dancers 30, 40 hours a week. <laughs> They're probably grateful for that because the work that we do can very, <laughs> be very physically demanding. Yes. But, so they all have various other jobs. And in a lot of cases, you know, one of the reasons why I've decided to do this work in Los Angeles, and I'm not sure that I really could do it 
in too many other cities is because dancers, particularly straight dancers and hip hop dancers, move to Los Angeles to pursue a career as a performer, particularly because the entertainment industry offers uh, the opportunity to book jobs in film, TV commercials, what, music videos, what have you, that are paid. But that work is very, um, it can be very sporadic. It can, it's extremely competitive. It can be utterly unfulfilling on an artistic level, uh, depending on the particular gig. It most often does not offer a whole lot of opportunity for dancers to contribute creatively. You know, the one exception may be street dancers whose primary form is freestyling, but then that, you know, if that's the only thing you're doing, then your opportunities for working are much more limited than if you're able to perform choreographed material as well to learn and do that. So anyhow, those dancers are the ones that end up in antics and I get to have them for, um, you know, six hours a week. And then we get to perform, you know, a show a month or a few shows or depending on what it is. And they are really excited to be a part of the work that Antics is doing. And so therefore, although we're not able to pay them, you know, rates that are going to help them become wealthy individuals or even help them, you know, make a down payment on a home, at least the money is covering their travel expenses and a little more. It's going to cover whatever parking tickets happen <laughs> from time <laughs> to time. You know, real talk. This is Los Angeles. Yes, that's right. So, so yeah, it has not really been a challenge. And, and on top of that, all of the dancers that I'm working with in Antics are the majority of them are well grounded in a particular street dance style. So beyond just hip hop and like commercial hip hop choreography, like what happens in the studio, if you go to a studio and you take hip hop classes and you learn how to perform that choreography, that's one thing. But um, aside from that, there are all these street dance styles that are, you know, connected to the culture of hip hop, such as b-boying and b-girling, otherwise known as breakdancing. And then there's popping, there's locking, there's whacking, there's crump dance, there's uh, house dance, there's uh, footworking, there's so many street dance styles. And the the heart and soul of the street dance is, is to be able to freestyle, to improvise, uh, to have a very individual approach to your movement that maybe no one else does a lot of the moves, or at least not in the same way as as you do as an individual dancer. And that thinking that's like imbued into the practice of these street dance styles from day one is what's so helpful when I have these street dancers like in the company. Um, I would say that on the flip side, probably the biggest challenge is trying to strike a balance between dancers who are able to just kill it in a freestyle and go out there and have this incredible, incredibly dynamic and virtuosic solo material that then also are asked to perform as a group and to learn choreography, either just straight up hip hop choreography, or perhaps choreography in one of these street dance styles like uh, locking or breaking, that's trying to strike that balance can be really difficult because typically what you'll see is dancers who've been, who have extensive training in, I'm going to call it studio hip hop for the purposes of like discerning between the two. Uh, and they're very familiar with walking into a class, having a choreographer or director tell them what to do and to be able to learn and mimic that movement very accurately, very quickly. Um, and on the, and those dancers often don't feel confident enough or courageous enough to go out and perform a solo freestyle. Um, they struggle with that a little bit more. They're not used to creating their own movement. And on the flip side, the dancers who are, they learned at a community center, they learned a dance style because their older brother or their cousin taught them and they have never been to a formal dance class in a studio where someone's telling what to do. They probably learned it more from the mentoring process, or maybe they learned a little bit by, you know, watching YouTube videos or what have you. Those dancers that come in with that background uh, often have a much more difficult time learning choreography of any kind um, and being able to get it quickly and perform it quickly. So, but because antics, like for our artistic vision, requires both of those approaches to um, movement, that's our our biggest challenge. I think that that's great that you are able to identify those two types of dancers and you're able to work so that it can work and you cater to, you know, from both schools of thought. But yeah, you're right. I think it, to be able to do both is really important. That makes a really good dancer. And I know that in, uh, in your production, storytelling is really important in your work. 
Can you take us through the process as you go through in developing your story um, that you want to tell? What is that process like? Sure. It's really unique to every performance that we create. So I would say that, let's see, when I was in graduate school at UCLA, for my thesis concert, I created a two-woman show that actually had dialogue in it. And I partnered um, with a woman, Jessie Bliss, who had written the script. And then I was choreographing. And it was a collaborative process that was fraught with difficulties. And I learned a lot from the process of that collaboration, um, just as an artist and how to approach collaboration in general. So that one, you know, we were creating from scratch. And she actually, as she as a theater artist, was writing the script and conceiving of the story. Um, I think there was some dialogue between her and I that uh, helped to generate some ideas for the story and how it might go. But in the end, um, she wrote the script. And then I was working with that to create the choreographed scenes. Um, and then we both performed and, you know, I performed, uh, I had to speak lines and she had to do some dancing. And then we also actually worked with, uh, my advisor at the time was Rennie Harris because he was teaching at UCLA. And so he helped give us feedback in rehearsals on, and that was really particularly helpful on a show like that, because as I'm performing in it, it's much, much more difficult to direct because you're not an outside eye. So that, that process of having being removed from the performance and being able to see it from the outside in is really, I believe, critical to, to being a director. And then in, let's see, after that, I directed a show called, I choreographed, directed, and performed in. <laughs> didn't, <laughs> didn't learn my lesson right away. <laughs> Another show called Breaking the Cypher that was the first uh, hip-hop dance performance at the Ford Theaters back in 2007. Um, and that one didn't have like an out and out story that I think the overall like theme to it was creativity through street dance. That was the interconnected theme. And then there were like concepts in each pieces in each piece within the show, but not like an actual storyline per se. So th my, that was my approach to storytelling in dance and hip hop dance theater it was evolving. And then after that show, um, I had because of our relationship with the LA County, which uh, runs the Ford Theaters, Antics was invited to uh, perform at the holiday celebration that they hold at the Music Center each year. And they actually commissioned us to create a five minute interpretation of the Nutcracker. And that actually opened some creative doors for me because uh, we were working with character at that point, or at least the way I chose to approach it. So uh, we had Clara, who was a B-girl. We had uh, Uncle Drosselmeyer, who was a crump dancer. I actually cast the Christmas tree as a popper. So he was like hidden for the first portion of the choreography. And then in that moment, when the clock strikes midnight and the Christmas tree begins to grow, he stood up and he had this solo that he performed in a in a Christmas tree costume that was just incredible. It's one of my favorite moments of all time <laughs> in our work. That really got me thinking about character. And then some years later, when I, I was actually looking for a story that would just lend itself to being performed as a hip hop dance I'm going to use the word ballet in the sense of like a dance production, you know, an evening length production. And I came across the Epic of Gilgamesh, which I did not actually study in high school literature class, but it's, it's a very, very old story. It predates um, Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey. It predates the Bible, depending on which historian you're talked to. Many attribute stories, a story, in particular the flood story in the Bible to having had uh, inspiration from stories that are in the Epic of Gilgamesh, which was found written in cuneiform in clay tablets uh, in present day present day Iraq in on these clay tablets in in Mesopotamia. What was ancient Mesopotamia? And this story is uh, it has a central hero hero figure who is King Gilgamesh who goes through on this personal journey that of transformation where he goes from being a dictatorial horrible king who is abusing his subjects um, in the end to discovering empathy and compassion through this friendship that he has with this kind of otherworldly, half-human, half-creature 
named Enkidu, um, who becomes his best friend, and then he loses him. So this story, I went in search of a story for that one. I did not write it. <laughs> um, it's been around for uh, many millennia, um, and we interpreted it. So in that case, I, as the director, I really kind of functioned as Oh, as the dramaturge as well, I guess it, it would have been, you know, the show would have been six hours long had we chose to try to interpret and present the entirety of the text. And so um, I had to excerpt key characters um, and key story moments um, that we could present on stage and still give a sense of the whole story. So that that was how we approached that one. And then uh, as well, because many people aren't familiar with the Epic of Gilgamesh, um, and I didn't want to, you know, have those people be completely confused in watching our performance, I made the artistic choice to have short projections just of little bits of the text and basically quoting from the text. And that happened, I don't know, there was, I think, 11 tablets that we did. Um, each tablet is like a chapter. And at the beginning of each chapter, there was 30 seconds to one minute of projected text that gave an insight as to what the action was and the characters in that particular chapter. Um, and then the characters would perform and their very individualized street dance styles were also cultivated as expressions of character and emotion and story and, you know, action in the story. Um, and then as well, the costumes were helping to tell the story. A couple of years ago, when we began to work on this newest show that we are currently working on, which is called Sneaker Suites, that originated with my idea that sneakers are this, they are the primary tool of street dancers. They're, they're tied up in our identity as dancers. And yet that's also this commonality that we have with pretty much everyone in America. You're going to be hard put to find someone who doesn't own a pair of sneakers. They're very, uh, they're kind of a universal icon of consumption. I think Michael Eric Dyson, that was, that was his <laughs> statement about sneakers. So I, I wanted to really delve into it and find out what that's about. Like, you know, where, where are sneakers made? Who makes them? Who wears them? Who dances in them? How are our childhood memories and identities? How, how are sneakers part of that? And how are sneakers emblematic of this culture of consumption that we live in and experience and engage in in the U.S.? So I have a, my friend, Mark Gonzalez is, is a story architect. He's an amazing poet and activist, uh, Oakland based now living between Oakland and Tunisia, um, doing incredible projects. And, uh, I'd known him for a number of years and we decided to work together on sneaker suites and I commissioned him to, um, write several poems for this piece. And he ended up writing, uh, five poems and through a dialogue with him and I together, uh, we nailed down what was going to be the focus of each poem. And then we went through a revision process. There was maybe like anywhere from one to three rounds of revisions on each poem. You know, he would say, oh, can you send me the music for this piece that will help me be inspired to write the poem? I'm like, I don't know what the music's going to be yet. I need to hear the poem and then I'm going <laughs> to, you know, and then that will inspire me what I need to do for music. So there was this back and forth and it got sorted out. But part of the part of the exciting part of the, this story sourcing was that Mark was doing interviews with the dancers and he came down and participated in several antics rehearsals where we did some mind mapping and brainstorming and discussions with the dancers about their personal experiences with sneakers from growing up to present day to you know, what dance, what sneakers are, you know, comfortable for them to dance in to what were their favorite sneakers ever of all time to, you know, what sneakers were they wearing when they won a particular battle to, you know, does anyone collect sneakers to, you know, does anyone know where your sneakers were made? And no, oh, I have no idea no idea who's making my sneakers for the most part. So all, all of that material that Mark generated, um, that was really quite profound and, uh, and elicited some really 
interesting um, stories from from childhood and experiences that that just kind of highlighted a great diversity of cultural backgrounds um, amongst the dancers and antics who are really coming from many many different places and and he rolled those into the poetry and now in the actual show we have a dancer who's a b-boy who's performing mark's poetry so he's he's performing the spoken word poetry as a part of the show and also doing some dancing and the dancers have a really profound connection to the text in the poetry and the stories in the poetry because many of them contributed to those stories. So yeah, it's uh, <laughs> generating stories. It, uh, there's a number of different approaches. And I think that my, my approach to generating stories and cre- creating stories um, is continually evolving. And it's, it's really different depending on each show. Being the dance nerd that I am, I was getting so excited as you were describing all the different processes and the research that you were doing. And it's just, it's, for me, it's very exciting the t- you know, what you do and the intention and the focus and how deep you dive into like what you're saying, Mark coming down to get the stories from your dancers and making it really, really personal. I just loved hearing all of that, Amy. It was Mm. it's so cool because for me, you know, as I've gotten back into dance, the people that I've met and the the things I feel like I'm learning all over again Mm. because there's so much more that you can do and it's not just about how high you can get your leg, which I'm all for. I'm all for technique. I'm all for get, you know, refining what you can do and seeing what your body can do. But at the same time, I'm so fascinated with the story behind dance and the emotion and what people bring from their personal life and developing stories from places that you wouldn't think that you can develop a story or like what you were talking about with one of your productions about it wasn't about just putting out a six hour production because that wasn't feasible, but you were already mindful of striking that balance between I need my audience to get what I'm doing, but still stay true to my, my artistic vision. And I think that that a good choreographer knows how to do that. And Hmm. um, I loved how you described that. So thank you so much for sharing all that detail. I love it. Mm, You're welcome. You had studied ballet when you were younger, right? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Yeah, there's these photos that my mom says it's me and I'm probably about two, three years old wearing a pink tutu (laughs) and um, with this horrible haircut. And uh, yeah, so... So there was that. I did ballet for, I don't know, a couple of years, uh, essentially as a toddler. And then come second grade, my my best friend uh, decided that gymnastics was the thing to do. So all of a sudden, I didn't, I didn't want to be in ballet anymore. I wanted to do gymnastics and uh, kind of did that for a year or two. And, and then we moved actually. And I, I ended up going to junior and junior high and high school outside of, I'm, I'm from Seattle originally born and raised. And then I, we moved to Snohomish, which is about four, an hour North of Seattle. It's out in the country. Um, and we had five acres at that time and I ended up getting horses and I was uh, really involved in riding horses. And then in junior high, I started snowboarding and that became a large part of my life. And dance really was on the back back burner. It was it wasn't a thing that I was doing at that point. And um, I kind of dabbled in it in high school in like a small local studio that uh, was kind of focused on. I'm going to call it creative dance, but there wasn't a lot of technique taught, and um, it was just something for fun that I did. But I was I was more focused on snowboarding and and then when I went to University of Washington, you know, my parents just raised me to, uh, <laughs> to assume that I was going to go to college. And, um, I decided to go to university of Washington. It was close to home. I would be able to continue snowboarding and continue, uh, riding my horse while I was at college. And during the, and as I was at college, um, I went, I think thinking that I was going to be doing something in the sciences or possibly math. Those were both subjects that I really excelled in, in high school. And, that first year in college, um, you know, being at a large public university and, you know, being in a class, uh, you know, like a calculus class that all of a sudden has 200 people in it. And, you know, I really just got, I think, washed out of those classes. I was uninspired. I wasn't finding, I didn't connect with anyone who was teaching the material. And I have never been that person who's able to learn a subject from a textbook. I need to be able to engage with someone through dialogue who can explain, you know, a subject matter and learn it that way. And, you know, in high school, you're in 
20 person classes, something like that, if that, and then all of a sudden this was a really different experience. And, you know, I think I just became, became kind of disillusioned with it. And, and around about that same time, um, I found that they had dance classes at the university, which prior to going to the university, I had no idea that that even existed. I just would not have imagined that dance was a subject you could study academically or engage in academically. Uh, I just assumed that, you know, college was about, oh, you're an English lit major, or you're a history major, or you're a business major, uh, or you're a science major, and those were your choices. Um, so that was really eye-opening for me to take this ballet class from a woman who was probably at that time in her 40s or 50s and was just incredibly engaging and inspiring and approached uh, the teaching of ballet technique with like both humor and science. Um, she had studied very in-depth the anatomy of the foot. And they, their focus in that department at the University of Washington is on modern dance, like in historical modern dance as well, restaging modern dance choreography that was from the 20s, 30s, 40s, you know, from the past century, um, historic pieces. It also blew me away seeing some of the performances uh, that came there. Be- before that, before I was in college, I had never seen modern dance before. And I think I saw Alvin Ailey and Garth Fagan and, oh my God, Mark Morris was a favorite that they had performed there several times. All of these uh, large name touring uh, contemporary modern dance companies in the 1990s that were so inspiring. This whole new approach to dance that I never, that never had occurred to me. So when I was a little girl, my mom used to take me to go see the Nutcracker by the Pacific Northwest Ballet every year. And they had this beautiful set that Maurice Sendak had designed. And, um, you know, it's such a magical experience to sit in a theater and, you know, the, the lights in the theater go dark and you're just looking at the stage and it's this special microcosm of this world where a story is being told with these beautiful movements and it's you know it's quite dazzling and very special but you know as you grow up at least for myself as I grew up and my interests evolved and my politics evolved the nutcracker and these typical traditional ballet stories just didn't do it for me anymore it didn't it didn't resonate with who I was and the beliefs that I held. But then seeing some of these modern dance companies and the stories that they were presenting and their approach, even, you know, even the more abstract approaches to movement that are essentially storyless, you know, Alwyn Nicolay and Murray Lewis, but creating super interesting abstract dances from a compositional uh, approach. And that just blew my mind. It absolutely blew my mind in the first couple of years that I was there at college. And as a part of that process, I decided like, you know what, why not? I can major in dance. And I, I have a distinct memory of when I told my dad about that I had decided to major in dance, you know, and he's just like, well, how are you going to make money? <laughs> like, <how are> you- <laughs> That was like his first question, obviously, duh. And I'm like, I have no idea. I really, that was my answer at that time. Like, I don't know. I really don't know. You know, I'm going to have a dance company. I'm going to teach dance. I'll think of something. I don't know. It'll, I'll cross that bridge when I come to it. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, you can obviously see right through my dad's uh, motives in asking that question, uh, legitimately concerned as a parent, um, as he should be, as any parent should be, you know, and I was just starry eyed with this whole new uh, world of performing arts that I had just discovered. So I graduated from college and, and I started waiting tables. <laughs> it was great. I mean, good tips. You get free meals. I worked at some, you know, not big chain restaurants, but smaller mom and pop spots that treated me pretty well and was able to pay my rent that way. And meanwhile, on the side, I was doing dance projects. I spent several months in Argentina, actually, and performed with La La Nouvelle Danza down there, which is a contemporary company, uses some jazz and some modern dance. Uh, And while I was down there, I learned some salsa and I learned some tango. But I was also missing hip hop. And I kind of had, you know, it wasn't until I graduated that I was able to see Rennie Harris's company perform. And that was a whole second awakening for me after the first one, where I realized that hip hop and street dance could be performed in the theatrical context. And why not? I mean, that wasn't, you know, that's not where it was created, but neither was that where 
ballet or jazz dance was created for that matter. And, you know, since I'd been 16 years old, maybe before I'd going to parties and listening to hip hop music and dancing at parties to hip hop music. And that was always like that freestyle experience of uh, dancing to hip hop music and beats and DJs out and about in nightclubs and at parties was you know, just, it was just always there. It was always in the background, but not anything I ever took seriously until I saw his company perform. And that really opened my eyes as, uh, as a dance artist to some possibilities that had never occurred to me before. And that was, that was the moment that I started to much more seriously consider to look at hip hop and street dance and my own practice of it and to take it more seriously And I started performing with a hip hop dance company called Cruise Control, directed by this super awesome uh, Filipino man named Daniel Cruz in Seattle. And we just, we performed everywhere we possibly could, paid or unpaid, it didn't matter. We were just constantly performing. And it was such a blessing to get so much stage time because that was not something that we got as undergraduates. And a lot of undergraduate programs, um, you know, don't really give, I don't, in my opinion, their their students as much stage time as they should really have um, because that's such a part of learning to be a dance artist. But uh, so that was really exciting. And then just my own physical inclinations I'm sort of built more like a gymnast than I am like a ballet dancer. And I've, that's been the case all my life. But my career in professional ballet was over before it started <laughs> because of my height and my physicality. Um, but within hip hop dance, it just felt natural in my body. I was like, oh, I can I can balance on my head. That's really easy. I learned how to do that when I was in second grade taking gymnastics class. Like it's always just been an easy thing for me. So why not spend more time cultivating uh, the, the style that comes kind of naturally to me. Um, and I did. And I, I started learning how to break. And I started breaking with a crew called Barnyard Cannibals. Still my crew that I'm down with in Seattle. I got so much love for them. And eventually I decided that, well, I you know I went on and worked at Zoomies for a long time and did um, event production for them in the marketing department for several years. Uh, and then in that decided I want to go back to school. I want to go to grad school. I want to be able to focus on making dances. You know, I want to wrap my mind around how it might be possible to work as a choreographer or create a dance company uh, without waiting tables. Um, what does that look like? And I had a really active search trying to find the right um, graduate program in dance um, and was delighted when I found UCLA's Department of World Arts and Cultures. And I came down to Southern California, visited LA with the intention to go to several different schools. And I visited one and was like, nope, that's not the right one. And then I visited UCLA and just was blown away by what was being performed and created at the Department of World Arts and Cultures and decided that's where I wanted to go um, and was very lucky to be accepted into that program. Um, I actually got put on wait list and I, uh, I had to write a bunch of extra letters of recommendation or solicit a bunch of extra letters of recommendation and do a little extra legwork. It just, I was not a shoe in, but I kind of clawed my way in the front door <laughs> and they accepted me and, and I had a great time there for three years and, and learned an incredible amount and connected with some really amazing artists on their faculty and other students that were there, contacts that I still have and continue to work with this day from Jackie Lopez and what she's doing with Versastyle Dance. And now she's teaching at UCLA to Ana Maria Alvarez with Contra Tiempo that's been touring nationally and internationally and just creating this wonderful urban Latin dance theater. And the, the affinity that I have for those women and, and the, you know, the artists who um, came out of that program and their really unique approach to creating performing arts, you know, is still something that I, I treasure in my professional work t- to this day. So if someone wanted to start a dance company, what are the five most critical things that you would advise them to do? You know, I, this is one question that I really thought about it in advance a little, a little bit for like about five minutes. <laughs> so, so here it is. This is my advice. Number one is just go for it, right? Don't wait, make it happen. You're going to learn through doing it. You know, I, I myself waited a really long time. And if I, you know, if I went back and did anything different, I might've tried to make that happen um, a little earlier in life. Anyhow, just go for it. Jump in there figure it out. When in doubt, figure it out. Just do it. Uh, number two is 
<laughs> the balance to that is have a day job. Uh, in the current economic state of the US, it's darn near impossible to make a living from having a dance company. I don't know what that would look like to really be able to just start up right away and be making a living from your dance company. It, it could be pretty challenging. If you're a savvy business person, you might be able to put it together and just figure out what your niche is um, and where you're going to get hired and figure out the, you know, the budget of it and make it happen. But in the meantime, I personally believe that having some form of a day job, whether that's teaching a dance at a university or whether that's being a lawyer or whether that's, you know, working in healthcare or being a marketer or working designing lights for a theater, whatever it is, a stable source of income or some alternate source of income is going to empower you to be able to create the art just that you want, rather than being limited to the jobs that are going to pay you enough for your dance company. So I, I believe in that sort of economic freedom, have a day job. That's my part two. Part three is treat your dancers as well as you possibly can. They are your tool. They are everything. They are going to make your artwork succeed or fail. And the better that you are able to treat your dancers, the more that you're able to pay them, um, whatever it is you can give them, the harder that they will work for you and the higher caliber of a dancer will want to participate in your work. Number four, you're going to have to learn to wear every hat imaginable. Um, you're going to have to be your own accountant, be your own marketing director, be your own travel agent, be a referee, be a babysitter, and still be a choreographer and quite possibly be a performer as well. Uh, which leads me to number five, um, which is that you still need to focus on your artistry. If you want a dance company, you're probably doing it because you have an artistic vision and you want to create something beautiful or exciting or engaging for audiences to appreciate. And that requires continuing to hone and refine your craft and really work towards excellence in your artistry. So that's my five. Just go for it. Have a day job. Treat your dancers well. Wear every hat that you can and focus on your artistry. I love that. Very well said. And I love that throughout our conversation, you've been so transparent with your struggles and things you've gone through and that it's not like we talked about the beautiful. I just love that. A beautiful struggle. And I love that you are so open about that. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. So we're going to go really quickly into what I call the dance printering quick step. And that's three quick questions. And you need to say what comes to mind first. Are you ready, Amy? I am ready. Okay. What is the dance style that you haven't tried but would like to and why? Footworking from Chicago. Ah. I, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, you see I the know what you're yeah, I know what you're talking about. I watched a video tutorial, uh, gosh, a couple weeks ago, actually. And I thought, I want to learn that. <laughs> Yeah, Footwork Kings on ABDC are killing it. I saw them at the San Francisco Hip Hop Dance Festival years ago and have been enthralled with that style ever since. But, you know, to do any style, it takes some time and dedication to, to really dive into it. But one day, that's on my bucket list. That's on your list. Yeah, it's a great style. I, I think you're the first person that's mentioned that. Most people that um, I've interviewed, it's been some sort of ballroom, specifically Argentine tango. <laughs> <laughs> I've already checked that one off my list. I yeah. know. We did a little bit in our first dance at my wedding last year. <laughs> and you also went, I mean, you went to the source to learn, which I thought well, that's, that must've been an incredible experience. Oh gosh, stories for days. <laughs> <laughs> Who is your favorite dancer and why? You know, the obvious answer is to say the dancers in antics who are incredible and I am fascinated with each of them on their daily with their wildly different styles and skills and they just bring the fire on stage uh, but outside of that um, outside of the obvious answer um, I would have to say uh, b-girl snap from barnyard cannibals uh, she's an inspiration to b-girls she's fierce she's got a creative approach to movement she rocks the beat um, and she has a, an immense amount of strength for a B-girl and some really creative power. And I love watching her dance. She's, uh, she's out of Alaska. She's up in Anchorage. She's actually Blackhawk helicopter mechanic. <laughs> wow. And, and, and also a B-girl. And, um, you know, proud to say that she's down with Barnyard Cannibals with my crew. And yeah, I greatly enjoy watching her dance. I have to check her out. <laughs> Absolutely. Dance style that describes your day currently and why? 
Oh, uh, today is Wednesday, so I'm going to say <laughs> popping because today is an office day for me. Wednesdays are office days, Tuesdays, Thursdays are rehearsals. Today I'm going to be answering emails and doing interviews and having phone conversations and also working on, on the marketing for our show Sneaker Suites in a couple of weeks. So popping is the theme for today. Ah, okay. If people want to connect with you, where can they find you? They can come find us on July 8th and 9th at the Ivy Substation in Culver City, where I, along with Antics, will be performing our newest show, Sneaker Suites, that I talked about a little bit today. Yeah, that's uh, it's right there at the Ivy Substation is normally occupied by the Actors Gang. It's in downtown Culver City, right where Culver Boulevard comes into Venice Boulevard. This crazy triangle has this awesome black box theater. Uh, we'll be there on July 8th and 9th. Uh, our show starts at 8 p.m. The Sneaker Suites uses street dance, spoken word poetry, and film to tell stories about sneakers. The tickets are $30 for adults pre-sale, $25 for students and seniors pre-sale. But if you bring a pair of lightly used shoes to donate to Souls for Souls, you'll get a $5 discount off that ticket price. And you can pre-purchase tickets with the $5 discount if you are intending to bring shoes to the, to the show. Uh, so Souls for Souls is an organization that fights poverty by collecting and distributing used shoes. Um, they do pretty awesome work, and we're really excited to partner with them for this show. Outside of that, uh, you can find us online at anticsperformance.com. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash anticsperformance, and on Instagram at instagram.com backslash anticsperformance. I highly encourage you, if you are in the Southern California area, to go check this out. So, Amy, thank you so much for being on the podcast. You've re-inspired me to dig deeper in storytelling and in choreography. And just I just love the way you described everything, the processes, being transparent about your struggles with running your company and everything that you've had to do. So thank you so much for being on the podcast and sharing all of that information. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me, Annette. So if you happen to be in the Southern California area, I encourage you to check out Sneaker Suites on July 8th or July 9th. And I've linked all the information again in the show notes at AnnetteBone.com forward slash 076. And also, if you found this podcast helpful or any of the other sessions helpful, I would really appreciate a rating, a review, and for you to subscribe on either Apple iTunes or on Stitcher Radio. And that way, I can continue improving the podcast and get your name out on a session of the Dancepreneuring Studio. Until next time, I pray that you have an exceptional week and more blessings than you can imagine. I look forward to talking with you soon. Thank you for listening. This has been a session of the Dancepreneuring Studio. Find the archives of this show at annettebone.com slash podcast or on iTunes. Contact Annette at annettebone.com. This podcast copyright by annettebone.com and dancepreneuring.com. All rights reserved. The Dancepreneuring Studio is the place where dance inspires life and business.